Okay, so Man. we're here today, and I've got Alvin, obviously, who I always have, and then the lovely Tara, Hello. and we are going to think, have like a whistle stop around the Epicurean philosophy of happiness, life in the public eye, where we're going to talk about The Apprentice, and then also the inevitable breakdown, and that's all I wrote for my notes, and about pandas. Pandas! <laughs> I'm going to talk about And how this. Alvin hates pandas. Yeah, exactly. Test pandas. <laughs> this overhyped bears. <laughs> well, I, I, but like, are they technically bears? Like, because what is it? Koala bears aren't koalas. I mean, they're not bears. They're koalas. So they're not. I have no idea. I think they're bears, right? I don't know. That I didn't check. I only checked that they 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 so they do actually piss up trees to mark their territory. <laughs> they stand on the they they do a handstand. And they piss up trees. That's how fucking weird they are. Pandas. How are, yeah. aren't they too like heavy to do a handstand? No, man. They that was like that shows the determination. Like if you've ever done handstand <laughs> training, you can basically like handstand up a wall or a tree. And if you're a panda, you do that so that you can piss on it and let everyone know that you're the biggest motherfucker in the yard. Damn, pandas. Wait, yeah, the strongest. Well, yeah, but it's that weird thing. Like, can you imagine? All right, picture this. You're in the jungle and like tigers also mark trees by peeing on them or scenting them. And I don't know if you've ever smelled a tiger. I saw a tiger do this once at a zoo and I nearly like vomited. It was so strong and gross. And it was like the tiger's just like, well, this is my tree. And it was like, dude. And actually, to be fair, like there were two other tigers in the enclosure. But I'm just like, really? I was like, that's your tree? And like, you know, the other two tigers are probably like, when he's not looking, we're going to pee on it. <laughs> but so you have like this like tree in nature that like the pandas like, this is my tree. I'm pissing on it. And then the tiger pisses on it. Like, you know, there's probably like some stinky pissing tree that they're all peeing on. I'm glad I wasn't born a tree. Was- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Because it's just like, oh, here, everybody. Oh, God. You, maybe you get used to the smell. Man, Probably, um, you, might, you must like it eventually. <laughs> but no, so, like your your hatred of your hatred of your hatred of pandas. <laughs> no, I thought look, of they you. Had to shut down, they had to shut down in, in a whole area of the Singapore Zoo for a week so that they could mate. Like, yeah, I don't know. Like, this this is too much money and. To keeping these animals that don't really want to live a life. <laughs> yeah, they like want to be like they're they're designed to go extinct. They're like everything yeah. about them, like what they eat. They eat like one thing. They don't like fucking. <laughs> exactly. Look, Tara gets it. Tara gets. Me. No, I mean, I like I I don't like I said I think the panda molly. I think we give them mollies and then like we get them out there and then you know you just kind of be like, all right, guys, here you go, and then you just like, just think about it, like. You look at a bunch of young people. How many? All right. I bet you, even now, there are loads of like really young people that were born because of like, you know, well, dance raves and Molly. Oh, of course. We should have right? a term. I, you know what? No, I know. I, 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 like, can you imagine? Like, you know, you're like, well, what's the story of like how your parents met? Like, how did you come to be? And I swear to God, I bet you like a bunch of people, like, it's usually like alcohol or drugs of some sort, but I bet you there's like a bunch of kids that were just born from like one period where Molly was like particularly big in certain like countries or cities. And they're like, there's like a bit of a Molly baby boom. That sounds great. I, I really want to do research on that now. I know. A Molly baby like, boom. <laughs> like, what effect does this have on their identity? And like, why am I here? And like, you know, are they really, because like, if you're a crack baby, you know, you're kind of like the minute you've kind of been exposed to crack, like you'd probably be more into it. I believe my mother smoked during my pregnancy because in the seventies, there was nothing wrong with it. So it was like, mm-hmm. like people were still on the fence. Like it wasn't that bad. So, and my mother was like a big smoker. So it was one of those things. I remember the first time I tried cigarettes, I was like, Oh my God, I've been missing this my whole life. <laughs> I was like, and of course I was, oh. my mother was doing it like, yeah, like I was, I think I was 12 when I tried my first cigarette and there was just something about it. Like, cause you know how like there's often will be, there'll be something that you, whether it's like, you know, sport or your calling, but there were loads of things that, you know, that you've probably been exposed to in utero, even that, you know, you're exposed to as an adult. You're like, wow. And like, for me, it was cigarettes. Right. 
Yes. This is so interesting so, how cigarettes used to be so accepted. I remember when I was a kid, my dad had a pickup truck that had a cigarette lighter installed inside the truck. Wow. Right beside the wheel. Um, yeah. <laughs> Wait, have you guys I ever think... had that? Like, yeah. Like... A lot of cars right? still have that. It's like, it's, it's really? what yes. you use to charge your phone now. But it's like the yes. same, same slot. It used to be a cigarette lighter. I yeah. forgot, yeah. like, actually, Alvin, I forgot that that's what that was. I was like, oh, my car had those. I burned my hand <laughs> with that when I was a kid. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Oh, because of the colors, right? Because it's yeah. like orange. Yeah, no, it does look really nice. Oh, shit, dude. So you have like a Fight Club badge burn mark from Curiosity? Yeah, I had a lot of... Um, (laughs) (laughs) Alcohol for sure. Oh, shit. Alcohol babies. I had a... So I'm writing this novel right now, right? So I'm reminiscing Mm. about all all the times in in my camp. I had a... There was this guy who was 20 years old and he had a kid Mm. in, in my camp. And... And we asked him, like, so so what's up, man? Like, how did you get a kid? And like, 20. This kid's, like, a year old. And he's, like, I was drunk, yeah. man. I was drunk. Mm. <laughs> that's it. Like, No, but, like, well, I mean, that's, to be honest with you, I feel like biologically, like, that's, if it wasn't for alcohol and drugs, like, we wouldn't be here. A lot of us wouldn't, most of us wouldn't be here. Because I don't, how many sane people, and I know there are some sane people that are having kids because they get the urge or whatever, but, like, I mean, how many more people are born because people are like, you know, lazy, weren't paying attention, or got fucked up on something? Mm, that's true. That's, that's really why a lot of us are here. I wonder, like, how, how much, like, the reason, like, how your parents got pregnant, like, contribute to your life. Like, if your parents were, like, trying to get pregnant to save a marriage, you grew up to be, like, a certain kind of person, like, versus if your parents were, like, fucked up on molly <laughs> when they had you you yeah. grow up to be different well, it does actually they so they've shown like some of this stuff has a huge impact you know the stuff that happens in utero will totally affect you as a person so again like if your mother was stressed well you know she was pregnant with you that'll have an impact on your anxiety and your stress levels but mm-hmm. also you know if your parents were really relaxed um but even then before that there's a science called epigenetics uh, Mark Wolin is like one of the leading psychologists in California, I believe. And he does this where basically they've demonstrated that um, a lot of stuff that happens with your parents or even your grandparents is encoded in your DNA. So they've actually done studies with um, Holocaust survivors, grandchildren who are effectively traumatized or basically that trauma from the Holocaust and being in a concentration camp has been passed down to the wow. grandchildren. And, yeah. Yeah. How does and their- like, the same thing. How does their trauma mm. manifest? Like, is it in the, oh. the same? Does it look the same? Or is it like, how do you, how do they oh, have that God. trauma? Yeah. Yeah. So there was this one case I have like, cause I've had to read, I've, well, I didn't have to, I've read books on this, but one of the interesting cases was this woman that was this, um, God, she had like, I think she was bipolar or she would have like, I think she was either bipolar or she was schizophrenic and she would have these like severe breakdowns. And um, it was like, I, you know, like once a year and I, she would, she was in her like psychiatrist or psychologist office and she's like, I, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm burning up, like I'm being incinerated. And it was a really weird choice of words to use. And Mark Wolin ends up seeing her. Um, and he basically, you know, he's like, Oh, tell me about, you know, your family history. And like her grandmother was in, you know, it was either like Dachau or Auschwitz. Mm. And the grandmother had actually watched um, her own sister being incinerated in the concentration camp. And so in reliving that trauma, yeah, the grandmother had basically passed that DNA and that imagery because it was so startling and so traumatizing. It becomes, so if you think about it, it actually, it becomes a survival mechanism for human beings. If, say you're a caveman, you know, before, all right, we just started inventing fire and like, you know, you're a cave person, you're dwelling in a cave and you go outside, you know, with your family and all of a sudden a saber-toothed tiger fucking eats all of your family. Mm-hmm. You're basically, that is going to shake you to the core because you're going to be like, holy shit, I now have to go make a new family. And in order to ensure that they survive, they need to know that even if I'm not here, saber tigers, saber-toothed tigers are dangerous as fuck. And so that stuff kind of gets encoded on your DNA. And there's loads of other experiences that do too in terms of like, um, you know, things that we enjoy doing and things that we don't. Actually, so here's a really fucking weird story. Um, and again, it's not about trauma, but it's about a weird behavior. My um, my daughter's birth father used to have this really strange habit <clears throat> where he would he would pick his nose and he would put the nose goblins <laughs> like behind this like nightstand table what? like next to the bed. 
Yeah, no, it was so gross. He, I used to call it the nose goblin collection. And I didn't see this until like well after I'd been pregnant. And at this point, like you're already stuck with this individual. Like, <laughs> Too late. He was really, yeah, I know. He was really hot, to be honest with you. So it's like, so I probably would have gotten knocked up by him anyways. But it was that thing that it was like, you see them and you're like, oh, this is really weird. And it was such a weird behavior. I'd never seen anybody do it. But he would, he would literally pick his nose at night and then put them behind the bedstand table. And um, he left. So interestingly enough, he left my daughter when he was, when she was 18 months or thereabouts. And actually, that was the age he was when his mother had left him. And he he's Native American. He's this Native American guy. And he ended up having, I think he's got like 13 other kids or 14 other kids. I was like, read at first, baby mama number one. So I was like, yay. <laughs> or oh, it doesn't matter. It's too long ago now to get hung up on that. But he, he had basically, a lot of the children, he'd continued that pattern. And he would leave them at like about 18 months. He could not step out of that pattern. Um, and again, who knows, you know, if it was just something he was dealing with on a subconscious level. But so he leaves my daughter at 18 months. And then about seven or eight years later, I'm living in London. I'm remarried. You know, I'm, I'm married rather. I didn't marry that guy. I, you know, but so I'm married. My daughter now has a stepfather. And my daughter does this strange thing. I, I'm cleaning her room one day. And I kid you not, right beside her bedside table is a collection of nose goblins on the wall, just like her birth father. And I was like, how would she have known? Like, but it was passed down. And I've seen other like weird behaviors that children, uh, one of my friends, her son used to do this thing when he was like two years old, where he would basically kind of like pitch head first onto the ground, <laughs> like, and like his head would be on the carpet and he would like walk around in a circle. And I was like, what is he doing? She's like, I don't know. She's like, but my, my uncle or my grandfather used to do that when he'd had too much to drink. And I was like, oh, that's really weird. But so epigenetics are things that are written into us. And some of it are, some of them are weird or, you know, quirky and hilarious and others are, are trauma-based. But that's how like a part of our identity is formed by, you know, our family, whether we like it or not, like we inherit all sorts of traits from them. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of learning how to make sense of that and how those traits manifest, you know, for you now, you know, as you are here. And then also what else makes up your identity? Yeah, I wonder so. what I inherited from, I don't know who. Yes, too. Yeah, right. Probably ADHD. And it's, <laughs> and it's weird. Like, for example, I've never really met my like my 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 grandparents passed away when I was I was young. So like in a way, maybe okay. I would. There's it's hard. I would never know what I inherited from them if no like no one's no one's told me um, mm-hmm. that I've like shared traits with any with any of them. What well, and that's I mean, yeah. Have you asked your parents? I guess they, I don't know if you ever like thought about it, but I should bring it up to my parents. I'll be like, Hey, uh, do I remind you of your dad or something? (laughs) Well, or just, you know, tell me about my grandparents. What would they like? Or, you know, what kind of experiences that they have? Like, it's a strange thing that the further out the, the family tree goes, the more you can see, you know, like kind of common traits that you share with family members. But it's also that, you know, kind of, how those traits are in you and, and how they, you know, get defined in you are different. And then the experiences you have in this lifetime and other things, you know, kind of all affect and make up your identity. Like you're this huge complex algorithm. I wonder, it's, it's interesting because in my case, my family, I'm very different from my immediate family even now. And I know I'm probably so different, like in a social, like in like a cultural context, like my parents, are like my grandparents are Chinese immigrants and they come from a very conservative mm. Chinese background. So they grew up with the belief that like, oh, women shouldn't speak, like sons are better, like very like old fashioned beliefs. So I wonder mm. like, you know, I wonder if like we would have, sh- if, if we lived in the same time period and like have grown up with the same, um, I don't know, like ideas, like idea- ideologies, how much we would be similar or like, are we just a product of um, how we were, you know, are we just purely nurture? Like, how are we brought up? How, what are we be taught then? What like the norms and what's accepted are in, in where you're, where you grew up? Well, a friend of mine has twins and it, cause he said, oh, I used to, you know, wonder about the difference between nature and nurture, but he's like, you know, these two girls grow up in the same household and he's like, and then I've seen his twins. Like I've been out to dinner with him and his family and his twins are like, night and day in the traits that they've inherited and like again because you know they'll inherit some things from one parent 
and then they'll inherit some things from the other, but they won't be aligned or matched in the way that they're, you know, they've inherited those. But then also, you know, again, there is that whole, um, you know, nature element of it as well. But then there's the nurture element, like, you know, kind of what kind of household you grew up into. Um, and again, if you've had like a traumatic birth and then, you know, if it's, it's something you're into, like, you know, you can even start to look at like astrology or, um, oh gosh, like, you know, your Enneagram, like there are so many different things with the experiences that you have that, you know, kind of continue to mold you, um, you know, your will. And and there are all sorts of like other esoteric beliefs around, you know, identity, um, the Chinese astrology, all of those things can kind of like build up that. And then like, like we were talking about earlier today at lunch is um, even when you look at uh, the national identity. So mm-hmm. if you grow up, <clears throat> and you have a strong identity with the country that you're in, you will take on a lot of that national identity mm. or you'll reject it. And that will be part of your identity too. I mean, like Alvin, I wouldn't say that you would, you're not a standard Singaporean. Like, you know what I mean? If I was to, if I was to pick somebody who was like a textbook Singaporean, like I wouldn't, it's not that, you know, it's not that you're abnormal, but it's that, you know, I would say that you're a bit of an outlier in some of you know, your beliefs and your ideas and, and some of the things that you do as a Singaporean. But that in itself is an identity because it's a rejection of the national identity. I wonder if that's more of like a modern concept as well. Like now that we're exposed to more the internet, you know, we're exposed to mm. more opinions, a more variety of thoughts, perspectives. And so you're kind of more, you're kind of allowed, not allowed, but you're more exposed, you're more, um, at least willing to give other opinions a shot, you know? So you're not, I feel like me, especially, I, I, I understand you because I feel like I kind of rejected a lot of the Thai national um, identity. And I think that part of that was because I was exposed to it. And I realized, oh, there's a different way of living your life. Like there's other options. You don't have to do it a certain way. Um, and yeah, I think that, I think a lot of like, you know, even something like you see something like the Thai protest that's happening. And I think a lot of that is spurred on by having the ability to think outside the traditional box and like seeing other ways of uh, other possibilities of like way of ways of lives. I think I have to go to another room. So what did I miss? No, it's all right. Oh my God. Everything we talked about, like all the secrets of life. Oh shit. We (laughs) discovered like the meaning of the universe and all that shit. You really missed out. I'm glad I did mm. that. I would kill myself if I found out what's the meaning of the universe. We we also found out how to like make ayahuasca by ourselves, and like you know we could just dose it right now. Apparently, it's really that too. easy to make. So my <laughs> my sister's like a chemist, or she's starting to be a chemist, and she's like, yeah. you know, like I can make it right now. Like, no way. Yeah, apparently. But I'm like, ah, we're living in oh, Singapore. Wow. Please don't. <laughs> DMT. <laughs> like, I I had a friend that made DMT. I have a couple of people that are looking to get that, and I was like, everybody always asks me for stuff, and I'm like, why is everybody? And I don't know. I'm like one of those oh people God. that people are like, hey, do you know where to get this? Or do you know? Yeah, I'm that person apparently. I can see why. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'm You're just very like... open. <laughs> Yeah, no, I suppose. But it was just that weird thing that I've had like loads of random people ask me for the most random stuff. I think luckily nobody's ever asked me for like black and anim- like black market animals or something. <laughs> I'd be like, no, I'm definitely not that person. <laughs> what is the weirdest thing someone's ever asked you for? Ah, shit. I'm trying to think. God, there's a been panda. a lot of like. I'll then ask her for the black market. That's what I've heard. <laughs> No, I got, I'm trying to remember, like, I get asked for so many random things all the time that it's like, I don't know, shit. God, I've done a couple of things, like, for people, like, I've just, like, you know, I've scored people, like, yeah, I've scored people a couple of different, actually, you know what, the weirdest thing I have been asked for was the Avesta. You know what the Avesta is? No. What's that? Okay. So there's this religion in Iran called Zoroastrianism, and it's like the oldest religion. Um, Like legit. Like it's one of those things that like a lot of stuff with like um, Christ being born around Christmas time, that's actually got to do with Zoroastrianism and Mithras. So because like I guess when, you know, the Christians were over, they're like, hey, we're going to take over and we're taking your religion. And they're like, oh, no, don't do that. This is our favorite, you know, celebration. And they're like, oh, well, we can just say that Jesus was born then and you could still celebrate it. And they're like, okay, cool. So it's a super old religion and a lot of Iranians like were still big Zoroastrians until, um, you know, they, they basically the Shah was overthrown in the seventies. 
and um, when the Ayatollah came in. So basically, all the Iranians had to stop practicing Zoroastrianism, and everybody was, you know, converted to Islam. And I ended up dating this Iranian wrestler in London. And I remember um, one year, it was like Christmas time. I was like, oh, what do you want for Christmas? Which is a stupid thing to ask somebody like that. But he also gave me a gift on like Iranian New Year. So we were like square. And um, he's like, I want the Avesta. He's like, but you'd never be able to get it. And I was like, what are you talking about? I can get anything. And he's like, no, you can't. And I was like, sure. And he's like, yeah, but it has to be in Farsi. And I was like, I can get that for you. No problem. And um, sure enough, I did. I found. And so this is it. Because he said, no, you don't understand. He said, if somebody's ever caught with this book in Iran, they'd be killed. And he's right. Like, you know, the Iranian government gets really sensitive. If you've ever seen, no one knows about Persian cats. They're, they can kind of take some shit seriously. Mm-hmm. But no, they found the, I found a, a supplier. And I, I remember I gave it to him. I was like, there. I was like, don't ever say I can't do anything. And yeah, I gave him the Avesta. And so he was like, holy shit. Like, you could see he cried. I was like, uh, okay. But um, the whole book was written in Farsi. How did you find it? Yeah. Uh, there was a book. There was a book dealer in London that I, I had known about. I worked in publishing. And so that was actually one of the easier finds. Oh. So it's like, yeah. Mm. But again, it's, it's, I don't know. I think everything, you know, anything that anyone can think of, I'm like, it's really about kind of just knowing the right people to go to, to ask oh, the right questions. Yeah. That's like a video game, right? You know, you're just kind of like, you have to go to the right room and then like use the right code and then you just ask the right question and then boom, you know, you, you're, you're through the level. Right. And you have to figure out like, okay, that didn't work. Let's see what, what I can do with this. Like uh, hmm. Zelda is a lot like that. That's exactly Ooh. what I was thinking of with Zelda. Isn't yeah. that bad? <laughs> Great minds. <laughs> I know. Were you a Zelda player then? I, I played a bit, and um, my uh, my boyfriend is really into Breath of the Wild, so he's been I, I've been I'm watching him play that a lot. Oh my god, you'll like lose your mind! It's such a huge world, and like yeah. it's so beautiful. It's almost un- like unlimited. Like you can really do like mm-hmm. if you see something, you can definitely like, you can find a way to interact with it. Like no matter a rock, a stone, like yeah, you can interact you with everything. So Skyrim is my favorite game. So I I would love that game. Mm. I need to get the DS though. So. Or a Switch. Oh, yeah. oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, man, I'm old. A Nintendo Switch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I still yeah. actually now when I fuck up on stuff, I can still hear the Zelda death music. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like, oh, you know what I mean? It's one of those things where you're like, oh, I got that. And you're like, I forgot my keys. And it's yeah. like, eh, eh, and you're like, ah, oh, fuck. Yeah, so, did yeah. you guys ever, <laughs> this is like kind of, this is not the same but have you guys ever watched like sailor moon as a kid probably no yes you did i did yeah so i recently watched it you know it's on netflix now and i was like i was like i'll watch it it was actually the day i sprained my ankle i was watching sailor moon and doing some workouts so (laughs) that's probably what did it oh shit (laughs) but i didn't realize how like dark it was like it's like so silly i don't know if it's like the translation but like they call like I, i remember like there's a line where like um they were like if you ever need me just say twinkle yell and i was like twinkle yell like who came up with that and like the episode i watched was really dark because like sailor moon's kid like there's a part where they're like the sailor sailor's moon kid sailor's sailor moon's kid is like in love with it's like really random but it's like um so like she time travels to like meet sailor moon and whatever the the father and then she falls in love with her own dad even though she knows it's her own dad Oh fuck! It's so How dark. Edible is that? Oh I my know. god! And I was like, "This is a kids like this is supposed to be for kids." It's so dark. That's why it's on. Oh Netflix. my god! Yeah, you know that's gonna set up so many dad issues and strippers. What I else know, is dark? Right? Um, Zelda's <laughs> name is dark. Like the the what? Japanese, yeah, the company that I mean, the company that founded um, Legend of Zelda, they got the name uh-huh. Zelda from F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife. Um, Fitzgerald's wife's name was Zelda Fitzgerald. So mm-hmm. um, they had a tumultuous like love affair, and so yeah. eventually Fitzgerald died because of alcoholism, and Zelda went insane. So she was locked up in a mental ward, and the ward burned down in a fire. Yeah. So yeah, it's like I mean, the creator of the games loved her name. So yeah. Did you ever watch? Did you guys ever watch? Do you know Game Theory? This is really nerdy. Well, I know. Um, I do know. You do know the yes. YouTube channel Game Theory. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Have you seen Have you seen the episode where it's like um, Majori's Mass is about death, like 
the the theory is that death dies in the, Link dies in the beginning of Majora's Mask, and the okay. whole game is him coming into ter- to, to terms with death. Oh my gosh, I have to send it to you guys. It's so good. You'll oh be- shit! Oh my so god, really it sounds good. like Midnight Gospel. Ah <laughs> oh, yes, I like. Midnight wow. Well, no, I mean it's always those like really weird, deep taboo things, isn't it? Because we're all kind of so afraid to utter the name, and then we're all desperate to explore it. I, I always love like when games and like create creative like art work of art like this has like a deeper meaning. It's almost like oh wow, like that's that's beautiful. Like you're you know mm. you're playing this game and like you're like you know subconsciously like thinking about death maybe. Well, I think it's like those analogies. You know, it's kind of a more palpable way to kind of make sense of our own existence. Like um, what is it? The Dalai Lama, like he starts off every day meditating for like, he gets up super early and he spends like several hours meditating on his own death and, you know, literally going through, this is what it'll feel like to die. Um, and then, you know, I think, what is it in Tibet? A lot of people do it. And it's like, it's kind of just in doing that, you're almost free to kind of like live your day and make your choices. Cause you realize that, you know, life is quite transient. Mm-hmm. Momento mori. Mm, exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like exactly we, that. Uh, I was reading. I was reading several letters uh, from from authors, right? Like just various various authors, mm. and there was this line that really caught me. It's great art sh- grabs you by both shoulders and shakes you alive. Mm. And mm. So every single book that I've really enjoyed, and and reading a book that's really really great has the rare ability to make me feel like super super emotional. Like I, mm. um, I teared up reading Us the Dust and things like that. It's 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 like what Tara said. It's the it's the story and the deeper meaning behind behind the work that, that really gets me. Absolutely. Yeah. Well I think that's like what is it? All art is born through struggle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like when you look at like really great pieces of art, music, um even like sport performance, I mean, all of that, you know, there's a ton of adversity and suffering that happens in, you know, that kind of need or urge to, to express oneself. And, you know, in doing that, I think you're also really kind of touching on, there's something so urgent about, you know, what you're trying to say to people and communicate as if it could be the very last thing that you say, Um, you know, or it comes from such a dark, deep, visceral place and it can, you know, everybody kind of has that or they're, you know what I mean? They, they know of it. There's a right. part of you that like knows of it. And I think it's then when seeing somebody's doing it, it is like literally speaking, you know, one's truth. Yeah. It's like relatable. That's why all like so many songs are about like heartbreak just because it's universal, mm. like pain and disappointment or whatever is so universal that it's something that anyone, no matter who you are, no matter how young you are, no matter where you live, you can relate to. Mm. It's almost like I think when you find like starving artists that then, you know, become wealthy, I think it's it's more challenging, not always, but a lot of times it can be more challenging to then continue to produce, you know, the same level of stuff because those problems are now gone. hundred percent. You know, and that suffering was your muse. Mm. Yeah. If Bukowski had a nice life, do you really think he'd be as prolific? So this this is something that I've really been thinking about because Fontaine, who was Bukowski's hero, he after after writing um his magnum opus As the Dust, which everybody forgot about, because basically it was World War Two, right? He had a great job as a Hollywood screenwriter, and he became a millionaire. But he never he never ever wrote anything like of that quality ever again. Well, exactly, and I mean you kind of think about it like when your life is easier, you're kind of through it. you know it's it's like how does one produce it but then you have you know people like i mean kerouac died of alcoholism and loads of people kind of continue to suffer and i don't think they do it because of their art i think that they just get lost and they they can't they can't find their way to happiness but it's also when you do find your way to happiness it's i don't know unless you're tony robbins like there's not a lot of people that are able to be like oh i found my way to happiness and i'm going to share with everybody most people don't want to hear that yeah i think to that point i think a lot of people you know, you continue to suffer through your art because art is kind of a way of dealing with pain or escaping that pain. But like mm. being successful doesn't necessarily heal your wounds. For example, someone I truly, truly loved and idolized is Anthony Bourdain. And, mm. and mm. it's crazy though, because he lives a life arguably that everyone would want, you know, traveling the world, trying different things every day. Yet, it, so it's it's crazy. It's it's not crazy, but it's like so many of us seek 
success and push ourselves to kind of feel better about ourselves or try to find happiness, even though, and the, and then in the end, if they find out that it doesn't, it's not, you know, it well, it's not going to fill way. the void. Yeah. I mean, it was like, oh, David Chappelle said that. He's like, you know, Anthony Bourdain basically, you know, has a job. He, you know, does the one thing he's always wanted to do. And he ends up traveling the world, like, you know, meeting all these great people, eating this wonderful food. And he kills himself in like this high, high end hotel in Paris. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, then he's like, you know, this other friend who had actually done really well early in life. And then, you know, was working at Foot Locker. And he's like, that guy never once thought about killing himself. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I guess like when you have, but when you're too busy concentrating on other things as well, like when you're busy trying to make ends meet or like trying to live every day, you are less inclined to think about suicide. Well, existential- yeah, I mean, it's also like, you know, existentialism to some extent could be a luxury or it just might be something that not everyone's wired for. Right. Mm. Yeah. Like I was like talking to someone and they're like, you know, depression. Yeah. Like more, the more prevalence of depression in the community is almost a sign of development because like that means so many people in a community is comfortable enough to think about existential things and not like how mm. to make a living, how to survive. Mm. I was like, that's so interesting. That's a great way of looking at it. Mm. It's kind of, it's like a double-edged sword, right? Because it's like, yay, our lives are improving. But at the same time, it's like, I mean, I guess that's what we're always searching for happiness and success. Like, you know, yeah, survival isn't enough anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what if, like, I mean, the thing with happiness is if you had it all the time, you wouldn't appreciate it or respect it. That's true. That's absolutely true. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's almost like you need that, uh, what is it? Like, you basically need, you know, darkness, you know, to, to contrast light mm-hmm. or light to contrast darkness. And, you know, again, it's that thing that, like, if you've ever... Um, I had like a scare, like, you know, a car accident scare. And then like, you know, you're like in that one moment when you've survived, you're like, oh shit, I'm so glad I'm alive. Mm. And immediately, you know, your life flashes before your eyes and you're like, oh, there are so many things that I wanted to do. And there are so many things I appreciate about being alive. Whereas earlier you didn't give a shit. (laughs) It's it's that strange thing. Hmm? Have you guys ever had dreams where like you've been pursued by something or the police or you did something wrong. And then it's like a super like panic like like panicky dream but then you wake up and it was all just a dream and just that feeling of relief like oh dude i had that so often during the apprentice like i had bad dreams constantly during the apprentice it's so Mm. funny i think it was just the stress of the show kind of bled into my dreams Mm. but yeah did you have them during the apprentice as well alvin I I never had the luxury of dreaming because I just slept for an hour. I just closed my eyes and I woke up. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky. No, but like after then, after the show, like, did you have, did you find that you had those kind of dreams then or is this like a, a constant thing, the dreams? Those weird times. I had, had a bit of anxiety, a uh, um, fair amount of anxiety. I had to had to escape Singapore for a while, went to Kyrgyzstan, went to the mountains for a while until it went away, you know? It was a weird time. Mm. I, but after the show came out and... All I could think was like, is that it? Like, is that what I was like concerned about? Yeah, um, I understand. And like, I talked to Danielle about this earlier. Like, it was, you know, I, it is positive in a lot of ways. It taught me a lot of things. But coming out of it was kind of a kind of shocked me a little bit. It it was a shock to the system a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like questioning my identity, questioning, oh my god, what happened? And not only like, and especially before the show came out, it's like, who are who did they see me as? And who are they going to portray me as? It's it's weird not having the ability to control your narrative in front right, of the 100%. whole world. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but you're good. right. Um, coming, like, stop watching the show, I was like, oh, you know, I mean, yeah, like, I screwed up, things looked bad, but, like, you know, like, my... That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's before it happened. It felt like a sword looming above your head or something, like, oh... It's, yeah. Yeah. It's just you thinking about it. Do you think it was kind of the anxiety of what if was worse than you know the actual reality of it? Because like Way once worse. it's once it's oh, out and what it once it happens, you're like, well, you're like that's that's that, and then because things do move on. Yeah, right? for sure. I think after the show, I think I was also because the show was kind of something different from what I had been pursuing. Like all my like I've I've always been a storyteller of and especially I, I do mostly nonfiction. I've always been mm. the more like 
you know, I choose maybe a path with less money, but more something more passionate about more like storytelling, more like to, Mm. to meet people, meet interesting people, tell interesting stories. And like, I think, um, that like going on the show, I I did it for a lot of reasons. Like, Like it was a great learning opportunity. I would love to learn from a media company. I would, um, and, and it's in the same way, like, you know, the values of one, I was like, oh, you know, I admire that. But it was really different from what I had been pursuing. So that kind of threw me off my tracks. I was like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, like the show, like a lot of the people I met, like had different backgrounds, different priorities. And like, I, I like had to really, really come like after the show, I had to be like, wait, 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 what do I actually want? What fulfills me? Mm. What like, mm. OK, success in their eyes doesn't have to be my version of success and like you know so i i really had to like go back take a second and be like what do i actually want like and like Mm. and like not just what makes me look successful like who cares like you know i really had to come to terms with that so Mm -hmm. like were they telling the story then as opposed to you did that feel like like a bit of a weird switch up sorry what do you mean well, because you said that you were a storyteller or like you're the one that generally kind of puts together like ah. nonfiction narratives in your work. And so yeah. to be on the receiving end of that, what was that like? Absolutely. Because I, I, absolutely. I felt like I didn't I didn't have control. Like I wasn't allowed to say I, I didn't I didn't know what they were going to say. So I didn't know what was going to come out. So it was. And, and that's what like now that I'm doing, like now that I'm actively producing documentaries again I'm like oh my gosh wow like I'm so grateful to be able to tell story and like I'm so like when when I try to do my own work I try to be so genuine I try to be so authentic with how I tell people stories like the good the bad and the ugly because I think that's what makes everyone can relate to that everyone can relate to pain everyone can relate to authenticity but something that I really pride through my work is authenticity and um, it was it was scary not be a, not able not being able to contr- like not like just not knowing like what it was going to turn out to be like not knowing if yeah I don't know if that makes any sense <laughs> no it yeah. does <laughs> I mean did you have the same experience like was it like a loss of control in terms of like how your narrative was going to be framed Alvin when you were doing the show there was a little bit of that but um, so so so. <laughs> As a as a novelist, like we're all control freaks, right? We're just basically kids that want to play in our own world. But <laughs> <laughs> but the main thing that got me was is is like a, is that it feeling like so I beat out like nine hundred people to get in the show and like and I and when I got in, I didn't really want it. Like it's not this is not what I want to do. Mm. Like, I can't lie to my soul. Like what I really want to do is to coop myself up in a in a small room and make up stories. And hold mm. and hold like my own events, which I get to be in control of, and just that being in contrast to the people that really wanted it, like yeah. Louis, Jessica, mm. they were like, they were they were just so switched on. And I'm like, ah, this is just a game. Like I don't know, which is yeah. why I didn't do that well. I'm like, that's so interesting you say that. I think coming to the show, like going into the show, kind of threw me into a whirlwind of like, oh my gosh, like, what do I want and. Yes, I completely get that. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like an existential awakening for both of you guys. Yeah, um, yeah. Absolutely. And it's really interesting Hmm. as someone who interviews professionally, like, you know, because I I come from a journalism background and then I went on the show and now I'm trying to do more documentaries. And like, you know, how sometimes I don't agree with how journalists go with, like, do interviews. Sometimes they're very... Mm. blatant sometimes they're very pushy sometimes they just ask things and like Mm. they just try to you know they try to it's their job they push they they nag they try to get you to your ugly truth and Mm. on the on the show it was they were trying to kind of feed you some things like sometimes they would be like oh so this is what you mean is this what you mean can you say this and it's weird Uh... coming coming into my own work and like I learned a lot through through being interviewed. I learned a lot of interview techniques from um, the team. But it was also interesting, like, you know, working with nonfiction and being like, okay, people, and it, it always happens. When you're in front of a camera, no matter who you are, you tense up. You never, you're never going to be as, well, not never, but you're not, you're not necessarily as eloquent as you are when you're not filmed. 
Mm. So it's well, so going to be a part of you that thinks that you're being watched or that right. you're performing effectively, right? Or you're so, on. Yeah. So it's so tempting to like not put words in people's mouths, but like push them a little. For, like you is like be like, mm. is this what you want to? So it's like really interesting to like now work in nonfiction and like trying to evaluate my values. Like, what do I? How do I really want to approach my stories? How like what do I? Like you know what what will I do to get them? Like what do I want to? tell like who what story do I want to tell for each person well that's always the interesting thing as well as you know the stories and and kind of what people want to tell isn't it like Mm -hmm. in terms of you might be going in with one idea of what your narrative is and then if it does years ago I was on um I was on a documentary of female MMA fighters and I think it was the BBC that had done it they had filmed me Rosie Sexton oh my god there were like two other women I think that they had filmed and I remember um they actually cut my piece out um, because the other two, like a, a lot of the other women, um, their boyfriends or their partners were their coach and they were kind of pushing them into doing stuff. And they had a very specific story. And then there was um, me and my ex-husband at the time. And my ex-husband was, he was very supportive, but he was also quite passive. Like I would just be like, I'm going to go do this. I'll be right back. And like, he would just, you know, he was very quiet. And I was kind of like, I guess the dominant, you know, the dominant, you know, person in the relationship, particularly when it came to my, my fight career, because he was the one, he's like, I don't think you should do it. And I was like, well, I'm going to do it. I want to do it. And I would do it. Whereas the other women on the show, um, they had, you know, their husbands or their partners were their coaches and they were pushing them, you know, on to do it. And I remember they completely cut my story, which I was like fine with actually, like in retrospect, but it was just this weird thing that I remember it was later my ex-husband had said to me, he goes, they probably cut you because they had a very specific story. And he was like, you were, you know, you were so completely to the other side of what they were trying to demonstrate that they actually didn't want to show it. And I was like, oh, which was good for me because I, I got knocked the fuck out. <laughs> or like, I forget what had happened, but like I had lost the fight. Like they, they were all leading up to a fight. And, and yeah, with mine, it was like a really bad, like, and I remember like even just weighing in that night, it was like, it was just not my best not my best work and like so he's like you dodged a bullet (laughs) it's like it's a good thing they cut you but it is it's that like there'll be a story that they have in mind and I think it's like when you you know interview for a job or there are certain things in life that you know you go for and you're like I'm perfect for this but the job interviewer might have a really specific set of criteria and if you don't meet it for whatever reason you won't always see it but sometimes you dodge a bullet and I think we were talking about this earlier, but while while it was happening, you don't really have the objectivity or you can see you can see the big mm. picture to understand what's happening. But looking back in hindsight, you're like, oh, my God, that's what it was. Or like, oh, I could have approached mm. that differently knowing what happened that I was talking to one of my friends who like like after coming back from the show and I was talking to one of my friends who works in Hollywood and she was like, you know, and she like gave an example of a scene in Hunger Games. She was like, oh, do you know, do you remember when Katniss Everdeen went to one of the ball or something and they were like everything you do the makeup you put on it's like reinventing yourself and I thought about it I was like that's so interesting because like Mm. I didn't even have control over like I I remember at one point like I think like they throughout the show something that always stood out to me is that they didn't put that much makeup on me and like and some other people were allowed to do their own makeup but for me like they were like we want to do your makeup and they always Mm. they never put that much makeup on me so I was like but now looking back I I always thought it was odd but now looking back I was like oh wow was that like part of my narrative was that like I don't know was that like an active choice like they had made prior to it but it it can be I mean it's and sometimes you don't I think a couple of my friends that did the ultimate fighter had because you'll watch the finished product and they'll be like oh you know before that scene they didn't show this this and that and you're like oh yes yeah. Yes. And I that's mean, the thing. That's always the thing, right? I feel like there's so much more to the story that's not shown. Like sometimes like, mm-hmm. so, you know, especially with, especially with tensions that arises in, in challenges or throughout, like what ends up on screen is just a fraction of what happens when the cameras turn mm-hmm. off. Like when the cameras turn off, that's when shit got real. That's when people really show their true colors. That's when people got into fights. That's when people went to bed or continue working. So it's, yeah, it's, it's hard not to give all the subtext, all the context to what was actually happening. Mm. But I think it's like, what is it? They basically, I think unless you've actually known people or you've been on the shows, those kind of programs yourself or you work in production, you know, most people really just like tiny narratives. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They like a, you know, kind of like a three-part, a three-part story or, you know what I mean? Like they're like start, you know, conflict resolution. And I think people tend to kind of think in those um, ways yeah. dis- despite or particularly because their lives are so gray and messy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to, not easy, but there's a, when, you know, when you're producing media or some kind of stories, it's easy to try to like, summarize some not summarize something but put someone in a box like oh this is a character Mm. this is another character but the reality is people are so complex like people are so layered and like the the bad guy is never the bad guy in their in their point of view like Mm. it's like Mm. you know that's one like when i did acting that was like the biggest thing i learned it's like no matter how evil you are you never think you're evil you always have something going on you all you're you always have your own motivations so it's difficult to um like to condense people into a simple narrative because archetype yeah Yeah, exactly archetype because people are so layered but there's not there's not no time to like go into everyone's complexity (laughs) complexity no but it's also it's like it's like um what is it horoscopes like people you know people will be like i'm you know insert um, you know, zodiac horoscope here. And generally, like when you actually look at it, if you look at somebody's like birth chart, um, what is it? All of the different planets align eventually to all of the different signs. So you're actually all of the archetypes and you might have one or two that are more dominant than others. But I mean, we as people, like every character archetype, like I think there's the 12 different archetypes that um, Carl Jung talks about. And it's that thing that we tend to be all of those at one point or another throughout right. our day, Yeah, you know, or moment to moment in a conversation. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of how we develop as people, like the hero's journey with like Joseph Conrad and stuff. Mm. But it's, it's that thing that it's easy for us to kind of paint somebody as one simple archetype because right. as human beings, you know, we tend to see in black and white or try to make sense of our world in black and white because the world is like full of ambiguity and uncertainty and, I think it's hard for a lot of people to sit with it, just like it's hard for people to sit with the idea that we're all going to die and, you know, death is inevitable no matter how much we try or how much we do or accomplish, you know, because it's, well, but it's true, right? And so it's like that thing that like, well, you know, at least this is black and white. This person's a good person or a bad person. And it's like, no, they're just a person. Yeah. That's true. It's way easier to wrap your head around something when it's like, simpler when it's more black and white when something's gray it's harder because you know it's because it's gray because you can't just decide like put your foot down and decide one thing it's it's like it's more sensitive than that mm. well people would always ask me like what's your fight record it's like they know you fight and you're like oh, the minute they'll ask you your fight record like you just lose out on all of like there's a bunch of interesting stories behind every single match that anybody ever has. Mm-hmm. But if you're just looking for an, you know, a number, like, Oh, you just need my number. I'm like, here's my number. And, you know, cause it's the same thing with people um, getting immunized. Cause we, we, the vaccine rollout here has been really slow. Mm-hmm. And I think here it's like Sinovac or AstraZeneca. And they're like, but those aren't the best. And I was like, mate, <laughs> I was like, I don't think it's even a question of the best. That's like, whatever's available is what you right. take. I was yeah. like, but it's that like, you know, is it the best? And it's like, is it important? And yeah. it's kind of that weird thing that like whenever you, um, if you work in like search I, or like for search keywords or you kind of do a search on Google, if you type in like, you know, the best, like everything will kind of come up. But I don't know. I think there's that really strange thing about like, if you're just after the best, you miss out on all sorts of other stuff. Like that Phil Moneyball, where he basically took like a bunch of like mediocre and, you know, arguably not so great players and he made a super team out of it. And it was just like looking at the data and kind of picking out, you know, kind of strengths, you know, that could be weaknesses elsewhere and kind of putting that together and testing it. Right. right. So speaking of fight record and, and, and like sometimes the people who win are, are not the best and sometimes the best mm. are not by the best people. Uh, this exactly. is a fight that just went down today. It was Anderson Silva versus Julio Chavez Jr. And what? No. Yeah, so Wait, the Chavez, Anderson Silva. The Anderson Silva. So Anderson has fought like, Chavez. Fought wow. Chavez Jr. <gasps> so Chavez Jr. is like fifty-four and five, right? And Anderson's like one yeah. and one. Okay. So if you look at mm. if you look at the record on paper, even I bought into it. I was like, you know what? I had a bet with my friend on this fight. And he was like, Anderson Silva's going to win. I'm like, there's no way Anderson's going to win, all right? 
Julio Chavez mm. is 54 and then he was like, do you know what's going on with like Julio Chavez's life right now? Like his life is a mess. But I don't know. Like, I just looked at the record, right? So, <gasps> yeah. So, are you going to watch this or can I spoil it for you? No, no, you can spoil it for me anyways. But so, I just want to point out one thing that I thought was interesting about this. Well, it's the fact that Anderson Silva is basically, he's doing something now that nobody's going to hit his leg. All right. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that out there. I'm sorry. Go on. <laughs> so, hey, if I had that leg injury too, I would. I would do yeah. yeah, quite. So, Anderson Silva <laughs> beat the shit out of him. He won. I bet he did. Anderson yeah. Silva's a really clever oh. fighter as well. And again, without the added stress of worrying if somebody's going to take that leg out again on you. Because like I think that's what happened. Hey, Alvin, I'm 44. Yeah, <laughs> like, have you seen me box recently? With like 50 fights, you know? I thought he was going to get like, I don't know. Yeah, so he would be a lot better than I would be at that age. I, To be honest with you, I feel like he when he'd had that leg break that leg break was traumatic as hell mm-hmm. and when he went back you could see he was a little bit gun shy with that as well because he didn't want to get it injured again and i feel like that would take up a significant amount of bandwidth mm-hmm. when you're having a match with somebody right so the fact that he's like oh nobody's gonna be hitting my leg anymore you know mm-hmm. ding ding yeah <laughs> he, he went in for that shit i was like yeah how good is the match does it go the full time or does he like knock him out uh, he won a split decision, but it wasn't split. He, he basically won every single round. Um, oh wow! But it was like people have to understand that Chavez was a world champion. Like he, he was a world champion, like a genuine world mm. champion. Anderson had two fights in boxing, and he won. It was that's that's so crazy. So now I owe my friend like hundred bucks. <laughs> oh shit! I was gonna ask you like how much did you bet? What was it like? Jersey Joe Walcott had that um fight. Was it um? Oh god! Ooh. Was Dempsey? Remember? Jersey Joe Walcott and Dempsey and like what was it? Oh, it was like he was like the total underdog. Dempsey was like everyone's like he's weird, he's awkward and um, no he beats Walcott because yeah what is it? Hold on I'm going to find the whole fight now. It's been ages I've talked Walt, about it before. It's, it's amazing that you even know Walcott because nobody knows him. Nobody remembers him. Anymore. No. Jersey Joe? Uh, well yeah but do you see why? I mean Dempsey yeah Dempsey completely like wrecked him. It was nuts. No sorry. Um, well, was it Marciano? Yeah, it was Marciano. Why was I thinking of Dempsey? He was Marci- it was the Marciano fight. It's awkward. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And it was that. So, but Walcott was like amazing and stuff. And then it was just, yeah, basically Marciano. Um, he drops him like it was with a vicious left as well. Time. He sets it up. Yeah, and it was it. Lights out. Mm-hmm. And again, it's that thing that he was. What is it? Nobody thought Marciano was going to win, and he was an underdog. Nobody but... thought Marciano was going to win in all of his fights. <laughs> um, money's always on the underdog. <laughs> I'm always rooting for the underdog. It's not a bad way to be. I mean, because to be honest with you, I feel like with, there's a freedom in think about it. Like, if you have nothing to lose, right. like, I used to love being, I used to love going and like fighting the hometown favorite because, like, if I lost, like, mm-hmm. you know, everybody felt really good about it. And if I won, like, you had to work really hard to get to there. And, like, yeah. they were usually like people begrudgingly gave you respect. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I absolutely. I absolutely hated having to like fight like hometown. I was like, ah, oh, when my friends would show up because that was always the time that I'd have a ton of pressure. Mm. So I would agree. This is so interesting. The only time I ever lost was when I fought in my hometown. Oh, interesting. Mm. Yeah. No, but it is. You put, there's a lot of unknown pressure about like, you know, being around your friends and loved ones. And I feel like for me, that was always a distraction. It is. Like, yeah. Right. I always found it like, I don't know. I can't, I've never been in an actual like fight. Uh, like a competition like a match but for me like I used to do theater and it was thought it's always harder performing to a room full of people you know than a a room full of strangers no it's the same exact thing actually I mean it is like you'd almost you know I think if I was an if I was if I did acting I would probably tell my friends like don't tell me when you're coming right yeah and it's it's almost awkward when you know the people I don't know when like you're trying you know when you're on stage when you're in the ring you're kind of embodying like another part of you like you're you're you know you're mm. not who, who you typically call typically are when you're around your friends you're like it's your alter it's like having like- sex in front of your grandmother <laughs> no but it's Great exactly energy. like think about no it is right like think about it like you in the bedroom is not you in the boardroom yeah. or you at grandma's for sunday yeah. dinner yeah 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 it's like showing them a very it's on it's honestly pretty vulnerable because it's like you mm-hmm. know it's not the part you are usually yeah, it's not the part you usually are. 
No, I mean, you're basically someone else. It's like, yeah, so I would say that it is. It's like, yeah, you, you know, you, you never want your grandma to be like walking in on you while you're, you know, in coitus. Oh my God. I'm, oh my God. I can't that. <laughs> no, I know. Like your grandma's like, hey, I made you cookies. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thankfully, that's never yeah. happened to me. Or have I never walked in on like my parents? Thank God that never happened to me. I would mm. be. Oh God! Or you, I think it's grandparents. For whatever reason, there's that extra layer of like related, you know, relatives that you're like, oh God, no. Yeah. You know, like with your parents, you kind of understand like that's how I got here. But like with your grandparents, you're like, oh, it's too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except I do not want to walk in on my parents either. That would not be a pretty sight. No. <laughs> either. Definitely not. No, fair. That's that's fair. I can't imagine. Actually, no, I don't even want to explore that. I was like, I bet if you search for that on the internet, there's probably a whole, like, oh, no. yeah, oh, I'm subset. Sure. Yeah. Walking in on your parents, and you're like, ugh. Oh. <laughs> Reddit walking, on, walking in on your parents. Oh. oh. See, I bet you there is. I'm not, I'm not checking that. Like, of all the things that I ever check on these things, I'm, like, I'm not checking that source yeah. at all. I, I don't even doubt that it's, there's, like, a whole can of worms you can open with that. I was listening to a really exactly. interesting podcast interest recently about like um, sex uh, porn with like uh, with people with disabilities, and it's like a whole genre genre of things. And there's like a term for there's like hundreds of categories for like the kinds of things you can be turned on by. You can be turned on by like uh, like disabilities. You can be turned on by. It's like there's like three hundred categories or something. It's oh, really right? interesting. Yeah. But it's the yeah. same thing, like, when you work in, what is it, like, uh, so as a dominatrix, there's, like, a ton of, like, subsets of interests, like, types of things that people want to do and that they're into and stuff. And it was also, like, there were loads of things that, you know, you wouldn't be trained in or you wouldn't specialize in. So it's, and again, think about all the different, you know, kind of, like, um, I guess, disabilities that are out there or, you know, kind of things. And it's just that it's, I think I said this to somebody once that I was, like, oh, when I worked as a dominatrix, I realized that like, there's somebody out there for everybody, no matter like what you're into, mm -hmm. like there is always someone out there for you. And again, like you just have to search on the internet to find it. That's <laughs> where when people are like, Oh, no one will ever love me. I'm, you know, and it's like, sometimes I'll have like friends that are like, they're gorgeous or they're really smart. And they're like, Oh, I feel so unlovable. And I was like, Oh my God. I, you know what I mean? You're just like, I'm yeah. going to show you some porn sites. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, there's, you're plenty lovable. I'm sure. Mm. <laughs> That's true. You just got to put yourself out there. Let yourself be vulnerable. Show your, show your freak. Let your freak flag fly. There you go. There you go. Oh, man. Okay. So I was going to say, I think we've touched on everything that we talked about that we were going to. I feel really like I've accomplished things or I don't even know if this is how we run them. But yeah. Oh, except for the inevitable breakdown. Well, no, we touched on all of that. We did everything. Yeah. yeah. Any, la any so thoughts on the search of happiness? I guess that's our whole theme. Well, I kind of feel like it's one of those weird things that <clears throat> as, soon as, as soon as you name it, it disappears, right? Yeah. I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that thing that like happiness is one of those. I actually, you know, I've almost kind of decided that it's not that I want to be happy. It's that I want to have the capacity to basically find joy in anything I'm doing. Yeah. And I'm the only person who has control over that. So it's that it's that thing that, you know, it's kind of having that curiosity and that ability to kind of think like, even if somebody's torturing you to death, you're just like, oh, but this is interesting. You didn't torture me like this yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm going to see if I can change the color purple that, you know, I'm seeing whenever I close my eyes because I'm too hungry. It's like it's trying to find that curiosity. I think, and it's like, it's making sure that you find a way to kind of like the highway showed you that meta technique earlier today. Yeah it's finding, you know, that well within you to kind of create that and ensure that actually, so the interesting thing about Zoroastrianism is um, Freddie Mercury uh, from Queen was Parsi um, in India and the Parsis are actually also Zoroastrian. So it was like Zoroastrianism was in Iran and in India. And um, one of the things that they have at like um, Zoroastrian or Parsi temples is an eternal flame. And, you know, it's this thing that they, they take care of the flame and they make sure that that flame never goes out. And I think that that analogy is 
you know, in each one of us throughout our lives, you know, at the very start of our lives, you know, there's a flame that burns. And, you know, it's generally one of those things that shines or burns brightest when we're, you know, pursuing, you know, our kind of like rightful purpose or, you know, we're in a moment of flow and we're doing exactly what we want to be doing or, you know, we're exactly where we need to be. But when we're not and when we're confused, it's, it's like still having, you know, that light there and protecting that light. And I think that that instead of the pursuit of happiness, it's always, you know, ensuring that your inner light stays lit. That's really, really important. I think that really resonated with me. Like speaking of, you know, breaking down, I think that was what, you know, it was at one point, I feel like to use that analogy, like my light was very, very dim and it was hard to, Mm. and you know, there's always moments in life where you feel a little lost and a little swayed, but I, I think it's, yeah, I think becoming, being more resilient is also like making sure you know that that light not not even like keeping that light lit but like believing that you deserve to have a light even even when things aren't going according to plan or even things aren't going according to well but having enough compassion understanding and patience for yourself to give yourself room to like you know have a light spill so that you can be the light that lights many candles mm, absolutely I think like one of the, that's I've been ta- actually a Buddhist thing. <laughs> so, but. It sounds Buddhist, but I've been talking to my therapist, uh, you know, a lot. And I think like one of the things that I've been working on is that like, you know, um, he asked me a really good question. I, I've been talking about like, you know, I haven't like, I really want to get better. I want to get better. And it took a while, but he was like, are you really giving yourself permission to be better? Like, are you letting yourself be better? And I think that was a really pivotal point for me. Mm. I'm like, oh, wow. Like, you know, like, choosing to be better or choosing to 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 change to come up come out of a funk is really quite hard work in life and mm. you have to actively choose to go the other way even though it feels sometimes going against like you know so hard to go go against something but that's sometimes what it takes well it's even understanding what is your better because i think everybody's better is different and so it's like defining that and then yeah making that choice in every moment of every day to stay in it right alvin what about you hmm well i think both of you make very very beautiful analogies and i think um happiness is something very personal for me it's more it's more about play and being being childlike and i'm i'm really really happy just training martial arts and, and writing. I think if I can have these two, these two things in my life, um, everything will be perfect. Yeah, I understand. It's, I think it's so beautiful when you get to pursue, you know, things that really light your fire. We keep on talking about lighting fires and flames, mm-hmm. but yeah, things that really ignite you. Yeah, it's, and, it's a joy. It's yeah, and to I, be alive. I think that's what really helped me reconnect with, my my values, my like perspective, like getting to do what I love again, like jumping back into like producing documentaries. Like that was what really like lifted me up again. I was like, wow, like it, and it's, it, it's, it feels bigger than me. I'm like, wow, I get to tell these amazing stories, meet these amazing people. Like that's like, like revisiting that passion was really what helped me. It um, does, right? Yeah. Writing's the same thing for me too. She sent me some of the documentaries when you're done with them. I would love to watch them. Oh, thank you. I mm-hmm. yeah, there's a few. <laughs> it's a bit busy, but I'm so grateful that I have been sure. busy. This this is something really before I leave, I just want to say this. This is something really beautiful about about like I, I feel like I'm a fanboy of like a lot of great novelists and I'm sure you're the same way, mm. Tara, like regarding like documentaries. Yeah. So so putting your own work out there and just seeing your name in print. And just contributing to these this vast thing that inspired you and would later go on to inspire others. Is this a feeling of beautiful interconnectedness? Yeah. Yeah. And for my case, I I, I always say this. Like I feel like I'm I'm so like I feel like the truth and speaking truth and revealing things is so important. I don't necessarily think I have the answers to things, but I think it's important to start a discussion to speak to speak on what's important in order for people to have a collective conversation for someone smarter than me to think of a way out for for people to yes i think it's i think for me it's really really important to start conversations to really be honest and tell the truth it's a noble purpose 
So it sounds like you pyromaniacs are all on the right path. <laughs> <laughs> Look at us, artsy fartsy oh. writers, documentarians. <laughs> exactly. No, I think it's fantastic. Um, yeah, I guess I don't really call myself that, but I'm more of a cool. But I guess I no, can. if you're doing them, you are yeah. a documentarian. Yeah, I guess I yeah, yeah sure. I usually say producer, but documentary to Aryan works too. There you uh, go. You can have all the titles. Sounds sexier. Yeah. Hmm. I know it's like librarian, but documentary. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking librarian. You were, right? I can tell. I was like, <laughs> documentarian. There's probably, oh, no, I'm not even going to get started with the porn thing on that. Anyways, <laughs> Tara, thank you so much for joining us Absolutely. this month. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I- Mm, no it's always a pleasure alvin thank you and i will speak to you soon thank you so much yeah i look forward to hearing your next month's podcast likewise yeah and i'm like dying to see what you're writing alvin i'll talk to you soon talk to you guys soon bye-bye bye have a good one cheers